Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 92 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's legendary guest, I want to put a quick plug in for the Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass on Patreon. The Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass is a great way to give you extra content. You get access to exclusive photographs, blog posts. You can submit questions for upcoming podcast interviews. You get early access to event tickets and exclusive access to a lot of free concert tickets. There's also discount coupons for the online store at mistresscarry.com. And every month we do an exclusive live stream Q&A to keep you up to date and literally take you backstage to my life. Just click the Patreon link at mistresscarry.com or go to patreon.com slash mistresscarry. And this week, I want to welcome Denise, the newest holder of a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. Plus, hellos to Monica, John, Brett, Atwood, Ashley, Tracy, and Christine. Okay, this week, oh, a legend, Anne Wilson from Heart. Now, back on episode 63 of the Mistress Carrie podcast, I interviewed her sister and bandmate, Nancy Wilson, about her solo album, You and Me. Well, now on April 29th, Anne Wilson is coming out with a solo album called Fierce Bliss. The first single, Greed, is available now, and Anne is getting set to hit the road on May 4th with the first gig in San Francisco. And her spring and summer tour right now is set to wrap up on July 30th at Floyd Fest in Virginia. You can get all the details on her new album, her tour, and basically everything Ann Wilson with the links in the show notes of this podcast. Ann and I talked about growing up and the Beatles' influence on her music career, finding her own voice, performing in front of the president and the remaining members of Led Zeppelin, her process for songwriting, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whether or not rock is dead, marriage, recording in Nashville, her guitar player Tom Bukovac, and so much more. So allow me to introduce you to the legendary Ann Wilson. Hey, 
what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mistress Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's Ann Wilson. Ah! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Yeah. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. Um, just, just living life, you know, living every Living, loving, laughing. You are such a musical legend. And for a woman like me that has worked in the rock industry for 30 years, to me, there is a Mount Rushmore of of women that are allowing me to stand on their shoulders. And I hope you don't mind the weight, Anne, because I feel like you're one of those women. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You have been in rock for so many different eras of music and so many different cycles of rock and roll. How many times do you think they've said rock is dead and why hasn't it actually died yet? (laughs) (laughs) Good questions. Um, I think I first heard them start to say rock is dead in the 70s in the 1970s um when disco was out you know well first it was folk music right rock's dead and then uh yeah then the next one was disco and then the next one after that was kind of in the 80s and then in the 90s rock came back with a vengeance and um then it went away again with the advent of pop music so four or five times in my life what do you contribute your ability to to change with the different eras of of rock? You've reinvented your career so many times. How do you do it? Um, by just doing what you know I want to do musically. Um, I consider myself more connected to uh, you know uh, jazz standards and I do for instance to metal rock uh, and that sounds weird but I I'm just trying to say that I'm not just all up into one type of rock music you know like my parents had all kinds of music playing in the house and I can understand them just as well so it's easy to move through different genres is, is what I'm trying to say I had a chance to speak to Nancy and she told me the story about how when you were young you went to see the Beatles 
and that you guys wanted to be the Beatles, not like be with the Beatles, like so many other young girls. Can you tell me what the Beatles music meant to you growing up? Well, the Beatles, I think, came out and us 13-year-old, 12-year-old girls saw it as, uh, well, I saw it as a survival technique, um, a way out of the the normal meat grinder of being a teenage girl and the expectations that were put on you, especially loving the music and loving the stories of the songs and the lyrics and everything. Um, as a young music student, like in music theory and everything, we those songs were taught in class and just, okay, what are the Beatles doing here musically? So there was that aspect to it. It's just to dream about being a Beatle wife or a Beatle girlfriend just seemed like a real uh, lightweight, unsustainable idea. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it turned you into sort of like a victim in a way. When you're growing up in a family surrounded by music, at what point do you realize you can sing and not just be able to sing along with the lyrics, but that you could actually sing well? You know, I don't think I felt that until much, much later. I didn't feel it as a child at all. I was super shy and um, I don't think I had any special voice in particular. It's just a girl in the choir, you know, but uh, when I got into my 20s and I got into bands and had time to go out and play all those different places and different conditions and hone the craft, that's when it started to come out. So maybe when I was about 23, right before we um, recorded our first record, I had some breakthroughs and um, the guys back in those days, bands like us played all covers, you know, whatever was being played on the radio, that's what we would cover. And so we were doing Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones and Elton John and uh, Rods, just all that kind of stuff. And the guys in the band who were able to sing couldn't sing that high, like to sing Zeppelin, for instance. So it fell to me to do it. And that's when I learned how to feel, how to sing rock, because it isn't really about your throat. It's about your soul, about your soul opening. Is it something that you learned on your own or did you go and sit down with a with a, a lyrical coach or a, or a vocal coach? Well, no, I never sat down with a vocal coach. Um, the way I learned was just to listen to what people were doing and try to emulate that and then take off from there into my own thing. Have you ever worked with a vocal coach? Because I would assume that using your voice the way that you do when you perform, there would be a concern to want to protect it and not damage it. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like any other part of your body. But in my case, my voice is, um, is everything to me. (laughs) Uh, It's my very identity really. So yeah, the only time I went to a vocal coach that I can remember is this guy named, Um, David Kyle in Seattle, who was like a master vocal coach, maestro. And I went to him in the 80s when I was having trouble. We were doing so 
many shows during those years and many shows in a row with no day off. And I needed help figuring out how to warm up. And he taught me how to warm up. And that really helped. I talked to a lot of singers about their um, their regiment of, of getting ready to either record or perform live. Can you give me some examples of some of the things that you do to warm up and some of the concerns that you have, like uh, not drinking cold beverages or the different vocal warm-ups? What's your regiment like? My regimen is, is um, lots of water, lots of Arnica pellets, um, extra vitamin C, and none of the rest of that stuff seems to affect me, like the cold beverages or the some people don't eat dairy or lemons or like there's all just different kinds of stuff because everybody's body is different. But I, but I, again, I placed just as much or even more importance on opening the soul as I do on warming up the throat. So I try to do a little thing at least for 40 minutes before I walk on stage where I put on somebody else's CD like Annie Lou Harris or somebody or Lucinda Williams maybe and just sing along with the whole CD. So I don't feel like I'm doing boring vocal scales or something like that. I'm enjoying what I'm singing and I'm opening up and uh, my throat opens up. So I do that. You talk about being able to hit notes like Led Zeppelin in the early days of your career. And every six or nine months or so, your performance at the Kennedy Center Honors makes its way back around the Internet again. Uh, Nancy told me about how her fingers were cold during the warm-ups and the rehearsals for that performance. Can you tell me what that experience was like from your perspective? Yes, from my perspective, uh, it was um, it was pretty high stress because you look out at the audience and who's in the audience. The, the president and first lady Obama, the those uh, surviving members of Led Zeppelin, <laughs> David Letterman, Dustin Hoffman, Stephen Colbert, Bonnie Raitt, Buddy Guy, uh, just Jeff Beck, like all the people that were there in the audience, Yo-Yo Ma, and so that alone was was enough to sort of give you stress mares, <laughs> but. Uh, we had been doing Stairway to Heaven in our set for quite a while. And so I was current with the song and I didn't feel nervous about singing this song. It was just a matter of keeping focus during the actual performance, which we did. I did and Nancy did too. We've all seen the band's reaction to your performance. Could you see Robert Plant wiping tears away from the stage or was that something that you saw later online? Oh, I saw it later on line like everybody else from the stage. You couldn't really see they were up in a box and uh, you couldn't really see that kind of detail in the distance. But um, I'm sure that that it was an emotional thing for Plant, you know, because he wrote all those words. And it's such a beautiful, holy song. And, and uh, he probably looked down and saw Jason Bonham, who was just a little kid when they were um, uh, doing the Zeppelin IV era. And it probably seemed really moving to him, you know. I don't think he was looking down, crying, 
for, for any other reason than it was just a beautiful moment. Your new album, Fierce Bliss, that comes out on April 29th, is yet another example. I feel like on the show, this is coming up all the time. I am shocked with how much rock music is coming out of Nashville or that has some kind of Nashville tie. What is going on with rock music in Nashville right now? (laughs) It's It's supposed to be the city that country music is built on. It seems like there's been a rock invasion and we've taken over. Yeah, well, it still is a country music city. It's a company town, you know, so there's there's a lot of uh, record industry and live show um, industry stuff going on there. But the thing that I like about Nashville is the the attitude of the musicians that I met there. There's none of this sort of um, holier than thou, too cool to care, you know, like it. Sometimes in L.A., out on the West Coast, you know, you get locked into this sort of rock musicians as celebrities idea. And it's not about the music anymore. It's just about image. Well, a lot of the musicians that I met in Nashville, the ones that I play with now, have this great attitude. They just love to play and they're thrilled to be able to play rock. They're great players. And, um, you know, it's just a place where there's a lot of excitement going on right now about rock and you know i say this after having been one who always looked down my nose at nashville um as not as being not rock you know (laughs) and and the truth is it's just a place where a lot of music is happening of all kinds Uh, there's a big strong you know religious music um genre happening there and of course country and of course country pop and Americana and rock. The way that songs get written in the songwriting community is, it's such a fascinating concept, the way it works in Nashville. You've been writing songs with a lot of different people, family, strangers, and everything in between for, for so long. I'm fascinated by the craft of songwriting. Where do your ideas come from? What, what do you hear in your head first? Lyrics, melody is it just an idea how does your process start my process starts with a pen and paper and i just start writing words into a notebook things i'm thinking about or or uh things that i just want to talk about like a almost like a schoolgirl would just write her write her poetry prose and that's how i do it and then if something jumps out to me as a good piece of writing then it uh, we'll move into the let's make a song out of this category. And then when we get there, then I need somebody who plays to help me figure out chord progressions and groove and stuff like that. And uh, the latest bunch of musicians that I've been playing with for a year and a half now um, are great at that. Like I can tell them what I'm thinking and they, my guitarist, Tom Bukovac, um, can come back with an idea that's exactly what I was asking for. And it's so far it's working really well. When you're in a, when you're in a a band that's legendary and so successful like heart, and especially when you're collaborating with a family member, is it important for you to, to leave? There would be some people that would say you're in heart. Why do you want to do anything else? 
But is it important for yeah. you to be able to go and kind of move those other muscles that you might not be moving in heart? Is that how that works? Extremely. Yes, that's, that's totally right. Um, in 2015, when I started doing the Ann Wilson thing, um, it, um, I had reached this kind of wall of, with heart of just doing the same songs over and over and over and over again. And I heard myself sounding mechanical and I heard myself phoning it in and just not being absolutely there for it, just doing it, you know, by rote sort of. And so when I first started doing taught, that changed. The Ann Wilson thing did not require that I do a bunch of heart songs. There were no expectations. So I did all different kinds of songs and went out and played clubs and just went rogue independent for a while. And it really helped me as a singer. It, it just opened doors all over the place for me, uh, like new things I could do. And it got me interested in music again. That's the thing about being in a band for like 50 years and doing all this stuff we've done is that, uh, is that you need to actively look for ways to keep it to keep yourself alive and relevant, you know. When I spoke to Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, he talked about um, the Seattle music scene and how his, you know, the his generation, the grunge era of rock, how revered you are as being a band that they claimed as like their own, that 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 Seattle kind of got to claim you guys and say, no, 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 they're ours. And he talked about being able to be part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And now that the nominees are out for this year's class, what's your opinion on the Rock Hall? And and what was that experience like for you? Well, my opinion of the Rock Hall is that sometimes I agree with their choices and sometimes I scratch my head and go, what are you thinking? <laughs> you <know>? But <laughs> it's kind of unclear as to what the criteria for induction is. And why did it take them so long to, for instance, to induct Joni Mitchell or, uh, you know, other women? I think now they're slowly starting to catch up to that. But it's a very political process. It seems like it's just magic and it's all popularity, you know, who gets to do it. But it's it's really pretty political and managers and um, publicists and have to do an awful lot of fancy footwork to advance a band into that um, level. <laughs> oh, so I could guess I could say that, uh, that before we were inducted, I looked down on it as like, hey, who needs this? You know, this is just an industry thing. But then when you're up there and you're being recognized like that, you know, uh, your vanity smiles, I guess. You talk about how long it takes for Joni Mitchell or other female artists to kind of be recognized. I interview a lot of newer female artists that when they talk about, mm -hmm. like I said at the beginning, the shoulders they're standing on, when, when Hart was breaking down barriers for women in rock, could you have ever imagined the strides that women would have taken in the genre? Because we've gotten to the point now where there's a woman in the band and that's not the big deal anymore. 
It, it feels yeah. like we're yeah. finally there. How, what's your perspective? Um, I don't know where there is, but, but uh, yeah, women are, are coming in a tsunami now. It's no longer a novelty. Um, I think that it's going to even out because I think uh, right now a lot of, well, for instance, I can go to a hair salon or something and sit there for an hour and hear nothing on their playlist except women, just all women. <laughs> and um, I'd like it to even out. I, like, I'd like to hear it more equal, um, which sounds really weird because, you know, here we are talking about it. But uh, <laughs> I think we need more quality control and not just, you know, it, uh, not just, uh, you know, advancing people because they have ovaries, you know. When you sit down to write these songs, these notebooks that you have, these song ideas, I ask songwriters this question because I'm not gifted with the ability to write songs, but I'm fascinated by the craft of it. Can you give me an example or two of a song from any artist, any genre that you believe is a perfect example of perfect songwriting, but tell me why from a songwriter's perspective? A song you covet oh, say, yeah. oh, I wish I wrote that. Yeah, yeah. there are tons of those. Um, a good example would be the, the classic song Bridge Over Troubled Water by Paul Simon. Well, Simon and Garfunkel back then. To me, that's the perfect song. And it's just, um, it's just a great story. Um, set in a real simple gospel style. So there's a marriage there between uh, music and words. It's not just uh, like a piece of product. It's definitely heartfelt and real. And um, it gives you an emotional reaction. That's, that's what I look for in songs too that I write. It's, I want people to feel something and be shaken by it. When you get ready to go out on the road in support of Fierce Bliss, the first single, Greed, is out now. When you go out on the road, what, what can fans expect when they come and see this tour and listen to this music? Because I've only heard the single, so I haven't heard the rest of the record. But tell me what it is that you're trying to get us to feel with this new music and being able to perform these lo songs live, finally, after everything we've been through the last couple of years. Right. Yeah. Good question. Um, I really want people to feel awakened, kind of like, hey, come on, wake up, wake up. You know, there's there's air and life out here and, and energy. It's a very, very energized band and it's an energized album. Uh, mostly optimistic about looking out at the future. Um, some of the songs are more blue than others, like the cover of Bridge of Size, that, that's, to me, the perfect blues song ever written, because <laughs> it's about standing on the abyss. It isn't about being drunk or losing your man or being on drugs. It's existential abyss time. That's a blues song. So these songs are, like, they're not small. They're, they're big concepts. And I hope it'll reach in and really wake people up kind of hard to be optimistic a lot of the time right now. So 
having an yeah. album like this yeah. come out to say that. Yeah, and it's it's probably my husband and I talk about this sometimes is that it seems like the whole um, culture is going through a really depressive transition where it's it's sort of catching everybody's got this feeling of trepidation and dread and um, hopefully we can start to pull ourselves up out of that as a newlywed you mentioned your husband um, is it harder to keep a band together or a marriage together <laughs> wow I think it's harder to keep a band together uh, in my experience and I've only been married the once and I'm just still loving it and feel great about it. It's harder to keep the band together because you have, you have other people coming like wives, significant others um, talking uh, in your bandmates ears and maybe saying things that uh, uh, pit them against you, you know, or against the group unity. It's really hard. It's a, it's kind of a revolving door with a band. I've asked that question. But, I can't count how many times no one's ever said uh, keeping a marriage is harder. Literally every, it's so funny. <laughs> every single musician has told me it's harder to keep a band together. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time. It was such an honor and privilege to meet you. The new album, Fierce Bliss, is out April 29th. Greed is out now. And, um, you can go uh, and see you now, finally. Touring is back. We can go outside yes. and see live music. Yeah, and it's it's good. I mean, if you come see us live, like you'll see a group of musicians that is, it's the, without a doubt, the best group I've ever sang in front of and uh, sung in front of. And uh, especially Tom Bukovac is really worth coming to see. I mean, uh, guitarists, musicians like him don't come along every day. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there she is. Anne freaking Wilson. Her new solo album, Fierce Bliss, comes out on April 29th. And the first single, Greed, is the first song on the corresponding playlist for this episode that is linked in the show notes. Every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast gets a corresponding playlist that not only features all the music from the guests, but also all of the music that we talked about in the episode. You'll also find all of Ann Wilson's links and all of my links as well. And there's also a link to episode 63 of the Mistress Carrie podcast featuring her sister, Nancy Wilson. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info. And it's all boiled down to five minutes. And if you're looking for more Mistress Carrie, well, you can always find me online at mistresscarrie.com. Or you can find me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 